Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. In today's episode, I'm going to explain why it can feel bad or uncomfortable when our therapist is proud of us or gives us a compliment. I'm also going to talk about how we can end therapy when we have attachment issues how therapists can alter their treatment depending on our diagnoses. And I'm also going to explain a little bit about why eating disorders often come with food obsession or obsessions in general. I'm going to talk about what we can do when we are terrified of people not liking us. And finally, I'm going to walk you through what to do with our complicated feelings about a parent who was abusive. What do we do with that? Without further ado, let's jump into this first question. Question number one says, hey, Katie, I hope you're having a great week. I hope you're having a great week too. At the end of a super emotionally charged session with my therapist, where I shared something really difficult that I've never talked about with anyone, my therapist said, you're doing it. And I knew that she meant that I was healing, but it felt really shitty during the session, or but I felt really shitty during the session and for days afterwards. How do you know when you've worked through something and have fully processed it? Ultimately, how do you know that you're doing the work and healing? When it feels so bad, it's hard to believe that it's healing. I love this question because healing often comes with a connotation that it's a good thing, that it feels good, that we enjoy it, that it's kind of what we should look forward to or look towards. And I'm not here to tell you that healing will always feel bad, but healing, I like to think of when almost comparing emotional or psychological healing with stitches. Now my dog Roxy just broke, like busted her foot open and has like 10 stitches. And that's probably why it's like front of mind for me. But when you see stitches happen, right? We have the initial wound, the skin is torn. And then the, the vet, in my case, stitches it back together, right? And so it looks pretty gnarly at first. So even though the healing process has started, it's uncomfortable it often starts to itch. If you've ever had stitches, like I had surgery on my finger probably about a, a, over a year ago now, um, it was last December. It itches like crazy, but you can't itch it. So it's uncomfortable. Ah, because it's healing the stitches. And if I itch it, I might rip it. And it also hurts if I itch it. Ugh. And I know that that might sound like a weird analogy, but when it comes to psychological healing, it's no different. Just because we finally put some stitches in it, right? You're finally doing the work. Oh, we're coming together. It looks maybe not quite right at first, and it's probably really uncomfortable. And your therapist was just getting excited. That happens with us because we see your process and your progress, and we get 
just so excited. We're like a cheerleader for you, right? We're on your side, like rooting for you. And when we see you finally do like take that step and make that move, our excitement can come out. And obviously it was not received well on your end. And that's not for, that's not really anybody's fault. That's essentially your therapist got excited because you're moving in the right direction and you just still feel uncomfortable about it, which makes sense, right? Again, those stitches are starting to heal, which is amazing. Oh my God, we finally got it stitched up. Yay. But it itches and we can't itch it. So uncomfortable. And so my encouragement for you would be to let your therapist know you had this reaction. They're not going to take it personal. We don't take things like this personally because we know that it's part of your process. And it's just important to kind of, as much as you feel able, bring us into that process and let us understand your reactions and where you're at. Okay. Now to answer your real question here, how do you know when you've worked through something and fully processed it? The truth about this is that most of the time, I'd say nine times out of 10, when something is triggering or triggers that memory or that past experience, we don't really have an emotional charge about it. Meaning that I don't feel my nervous system get dysregulated. And that can feel like knots in my stomach, tightness in my throat. I can get really tearful. I could feel really tense. It could, any kind of experience that you would associate with the trauma, the upset, however it has maybe felt in your body or in your brain before, we don't want that charge to be there. We want to be able to almost like, for example, when my dad first passed away to even talk about it, or even my grandma, that's a little closer. I'm not going to go there. It might make me cry. But see that dysregulation, the the feeling. I can talk about my dad getting sick and being in the hospital and in and out of the hospital and me going back and forth to Washington as much as possible. And then the call, I remember I was standing in Sean's, um, the hallway outside of his bedroom in his old house in Laguna Niguel when I got the call that he'd passed away. And I can talk about it now and I could tell you how I felt and I could tell you how much of a blur the next week was, but I don't feel my nervous system getting like completely dysregulated. I don't want to cry. I don't feel my throat like, oh, I don't find myself clenching my fists or my teeth like I used to. And it's not going to bother me the rest of the today at all either. And so just notice if you're able to talk about these things, if you're able to reference them or have triggers uh, come up. Like if, you know, someone else talks about losing their father, I'm like, oh, I lost my dad too. Now, if this was fresh and I was still, I hadn't processed it, then even the reference to him passing away could be too much. It could send me, I could start crying. I could be like, excuse me, I need to, you know, remove myself from this experience. So that's what that really means. That we're able to talk about it, we can reference it, triggers can happen, and we don't find ourselves getting overwhelmed. That's not to say that if you catch any of us on a bad day, let's say our resilience is really low, meaning like life has thrown all the curveballs. We've gotten all the lemons in life lately, and we haven't had a chance to take care of ourselves and kind of bounce back, then something could happen and it could still be triggering because even though these wounds heal, right? Even though those stitches completely heal, it could be argued that it's, you know, it's kind of a weakness. It's a, it's a spot in our in our skin or in our emotional self that is a is a a potential for a wound to occur again, right? It, the the skin maybe isn't as tough there. I know I know scars and I'm not getting into all that, but like to keep the analogy going, it could be a weakness or a spot that could be ripped back open if we don't take care of it. And that's just us continuing to do the work, to be a, a, you know, a human and try to build our resilience so that when life throws us curveballs, we can manage them. 
when it gives us lemons, we make lemonade. And it takes time. And I don't want anybody to think that you'll never feel triggered ever again. We just do our best to make sure that we can bounce back afterwards. Does that make sense? I hope so. Now, there was a comment on this that said, similarly, I hate when providers compliment me on doing something well in therapy or handling emotions effectively. I don't want to make them proud because making them proud means I'm giving up parts of myself and the trauma that I faced. Hmm. And I don't want to let go of that. That's an interesting correlation. Healing feels awful and it is so discouraging. And I feel like they're saying they're proud of me for feeling awful. Why do compliments on emotionally emotional healing feel so, well, gross? Great question. Now, a couple of thoughts. First of all, and I don't know, this doesn't sound like it's maybe you're in the case for, or isn't the case for this person, but I feel like it's important to mention that if we never heard from our parents or whoever raised us, our caretakers, if you hear a dinging, it's my dog ringing her dog doorbell, um, just ignore it. But if we never heard from our parents growing up that they were proud of us, that, that they thought we did a good job, that they were so excited for whatever it was that we were doing. If we never heard those types of messages, then hearing it from someone else is very foreign. And we have to remember that when we're not used to things, when things are foreign, that means uncomfortable. And even though the foreign thing could be a good thing, right? Hearing that someone's proud of us is something we should all enjoy and be like, oh, thanks, right? At the very least, like, ooh, we take that. Feels good. In, like, if we intellectualize it, we can see Someone being proud of us, that's a good thing. However, it feels terrible. It makes us feel worse. And that's because it's we're not it's uncomfortable. It's unusual. It's foreign to us. We don't know what to do with it. And so therefore we don't even know what story to tell ourselves about it, right? If I hear that someone's proud of me, the story I tell myself is, Oh my God, you did such a good job, Katie. Congratulations. And then internally I'm like, I'm proud of me. Yay. But if we never heard that, we might think, wait, does this mean I don't know. Are they going to hurt? I don't know. Do they like me? uh, We just don't even know what sense to make of it. And it can feel really icky. So that's one piece. Now, I don't know if this applies to this person, but I felt that it was important to acknowledge that. Then the second piece, going back to this person's specific question, that they said, it feels like they're giving up parts of themselves and the trauma you faced. So you're saying that them saying that you're proud and that you're healing means that you have to let go of broken you, of traumatized you. And part of that is true. We do when we heal, we want to let go of this old version of ourselves that was triggered all the time, hypervigilant, maybe had a tough time connecting with people, um, maybe felt very wounded much of our days. And letting go of that as much as, again, we could say, oh, but it's a good thing to not feel that way anymore. Yes, it's a good thing. However, it's foreign. It's uncomfortable. We don't know what to do with that. And so what I encourage you to do is to tell your therapist you're experiencing this and allow yourself the time to grieve because there is a piece here when we're healing, when we've got these stitches in place and we're finally healing, even though it feels really uncomfortable. Oh, want to itch those stitches, right? We put those stitches in place and we have to grieve the wound. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but there's a part of us that defined who we were by that wound. And we have to let go of that part of ourselves and thank it for keeping us alive at and doing all that it did, right? Often when we grow up in a very traumatic environment, there's a a piece of ourselves or a, a part of ourselves that develops as a protector. 
it stands up for ourselves or it helps us get away or it it fawns, it people pleases so that we don't get hurt as much. It does all the things and we need to acknowledge that piece of ourselves, thank it for its service and then grieve its loss because it essentially it's almost like this role doesn't exist anymore. We don't need you anymore, but thank you. And that can be really sad and it's okay to take your time with that. Let your therapist know you have this belief system and this struggle too because you're saying like, you know, you don't want to give up parts of yourself and the trauma that you face. Let them know that you core, that that's what you connect. You connect that you're handling your emotions effectively and you're doing something well. And then that means that you have to let go of the trauma that you faced in a part of yourself. And that that's hard and you don't want to let go of that. Let them know that's part of your healing process. So be patient with yourself. Grief is a part of a lot of our healing, even though we might not have thought that it was going to be upfront. But there's a lot of parts and pieces and, you know, I don't know, it's like past versions of ourselves kind of that we have to grieve. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, Hey Katie, could you please talk about ending therapy while having attachment issues? My therapist is pregnant and will be going on maternity leave in a few weeks. And I've actually been thinking about ending therapy for a while, but the fact that my therapist is now leaving and effectively ending the therapy, it has triggered feelings of abandonment in me. Hmm. I suddenly feel mentally really bad again. I have generally trust issues and I fear loss. And I'm wondering how I can best deal with the fact that my therapist is now triggering these feelings in me. Do you have any tips? Thanks a lot. Of course. Now, a couple of pieces. It's interesting if we check our facts, right? You were thinking of ending therapy on your own. You're like, I'm doing fine. I don't, I don't know if I need to go anymore. But now that your therapist is the one that's making that decision for you because you didn't make it yourself just yet, we're triggered. And I have questions about kind of where this is coming from for you and what we tell ourselves about her taking maternity leave. And if you're wanting to end therapy for now, at least we can always go back. What does, what does that mean? What do you tell yourself about it? When I said, you know, therapy's ending, how do you feel about that? And it's important to take some time to consider those answers, especially the what do you tell yourself about it? Like, what's the story? Is it that you're not good enough, that you've done something? Is it that they're never going to come back? Is, and where is that story from? Because it's not actually connected to this therapy at all. This is just another experience of someone leaving our life for a period of time, and we have connected it to a past story. And we're having trouble untangling it. And so here's your opportunity to untangle it. Because it sounds like you're actually doing fine. And you were thinking of leaving yourself, which is good and healthy. But we have to challenge those thoughts. We have to acknowledge what they are. What are our beliefs about this? What am I telling myself about this? And it's so interesting. Just the other day, I was like stretching because you guys know my like hip is hurting. I'm going to stretch actually after I do this podcast. Um, and as I was stretching, I was thinking, you know, it's so interesting the beliefs that we have about ourselves. There's so many. Because as I was stretching, I was like, God, it sucks to get older. Meaning I believe that I'm old, but I really don't. But there's a piece of me that's like, if you weren't getting old, you wouldn't have these pains. Now, I know that's like a such a stupid example. But if you think about it, we have a ton of beliefs about who we are, where we are in our lives, where we should be, what we, you know, what we've heard about ourselves. Like forever, I didn't think I was a very creative person. And I remember being at an event years ago. And somebody was like, but you create all the time. What, what does it mean to be creative? And I was like, you know what? I've never even thought about that. 
And so sometimes we have these beliefs about who we are, what, what we can handle, what we can't handle, what the world is supposed to be like. We don't even recognize what they are. We don't even take the time to acknowledge them. So take some time to try to identify the beliefs you have around your therapist going on maternity leave. What is it that you're telling yourself about her leaving? How is this different than if you would have pulled the trigger last week and said, you know what, I'm going to leave because I think I'm doing okay. What's shifted and why? And what do you tell yourself about it? Take some time in there. Obviously, there are tools if we have attachment issues. But a lot of it, when you look into the types of therapy that are the most effective for attachment, it has to do with like cognitive behavioral techniques, which is what I'm talking about, like your thoughts, your feelings, your beliefs about this scenario. And because we thought we were doing fine already and your therapist is leaving, we don't really have time with this therapist to dig into our attachment stuff. Inner child work can be incredibly beneficial. I even have a workshop available for sale on my um, at my website, katiemorton.com. You could do that on your own whenever you have an opportunity to do it. Like maybe when your therapist and you were finishing, you could start it right now. It's a two-hour workshop. It could be really helpful. And so you can take that time. You can do that work, but also, I think it's just important to understand like what triggered, like why? What's the story? What's this old belief that we've dug into? And how is it different than if we had pulled the trigger like a week before? Okay, think about that. Let me know. And there was a comment on this that I also struggle with something similar. My counselor was diagnosed with cancer a few weeks ago. I'm so sorry. And while she's fighting it, I feel in shock and I don't really know what to say or do. I've gone back to my old, I'm fine, masking self and I can't snap out of it. I'm too scared to bring it up with her because she has enough on her plate and I can deal with my stuff. But the attachment is hard. I don't really want to start up with another counselor because it's taken me years just to trust this one. And I'm in university again. But I feel a bit like I have to keep it together. Talk to your therapist about this. Yes, your therapist should have disclosed like they did that they have cancer and that they're fighting it. Because this might mean that they're not available for sessions as regularly as they would like to be. However, they're still there for you. They have their own therapy to talk about their own shit. That's our responsibility as therapists. You have every right to still share what's going on. Even share in your struggle to deal with the fact that this your therapist got this diagnosis. That could be a great therapeutic bonding experience because I'm sure your therapist is having a hard time. It's okay to talk about these things. It's almost like when I when my dad passed away, I had to tell a couple of my clients. Luckily, I at the time I worked at the Eden Zero Treatment Center. So people just filled in and I only had like two or three patients that I was only seeing. The rest were like shared with other clinicians. So it was pretty minimal, but I had to tell them because I was gone. Like I would left like, bye, you know, for a little while. And they came back and some of them had graduated when I was gone. I was gone for like two weeks. So, and I don't even know if I could come back and see people. It took me a little while before I'd like cry randomly. So they had to share it with you but you need to share with them what you're going through because otherwise therapy is not effective. And when you're like, I don't want to start up with someone else, I don't think you need to. But what we need to combat is this difficulty with you wanting to compare your pain to theirs and feeling like because they're struggling, you can't take up space and you can't say what's going on. And I'm here to tell you that you can, and you're supposed to. And that's why they're still seeing patients because people still have their ish to deal with and they're doing okay. If they weren't, they would take medical leave. They'd take a break. Okay? Speak up. I know it's hard. But this is another old story that, like, you can't take up space or if someone else is in pain, their pain's more important. 
That's simply not true, but we believe it. So let's challenge it. Okay. There was another add-on to this. It said, not quite the same, but I've recently moved therapists after moving within the UK. We discussed how I needed something in person. So it was a mutual agreement, but I felt the abandonment from my previous therapist. I've now opened up to my new therapist that I'm feeling physically sick with worry over her leaving me and not being able to cope with me or finishing being a therapist and leaving me all alone. How can I challenge those fears or these fears? Keep talking about it. And again, like I said at the beginning, I really want you to be curious about where this abandonment feeling is coming from. Because if we check our facts, it was mutual. But there's something in here. There's either an old story we keep telling or there's a reason that it it feels or felt like abandonment. But I want to be curious about that. Because it technically wasn't. Do we feel this way when any relationship ends? Where does that come from? When did we start feeling abandoned? Do we struggle to be alone? Can we enjoy ourselves by ourselves? Do we struggle to let people in for fear that they'll leave us? So we almost isolate as a way to protect ourselves. Or do we always have to be around people when we struggle to be alone at all? I'm just curious about these things. We have to dig into where this belief system comes from. How long have we been subscribing to it? Why did this trigger it? When we agreed, do we wish they'd say, don't leave? I don't want to end. Imagine how that would have made us feel. Because to me as a therapist, that's really unethical. That feels bad to me. I'm like, ooh, that's not, that's not healthy. Not healthy therapeutic relationship stuff. Think about it. That's how we challenge these fears because they're technically what I would call like, you know, an overreaction or they're not based in any facts. And that's, but that doesn't mean that we don't, can't feel that way. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel that way. It's just, it just means that we need to dig into it to better understand it because based on what happened, our reaction is an overreaction, right? It's an indication that there's something deeper. I know we use the term overreaction to be like, oh, they're overreacting. No, as a therapist, overreactions are helpful. They're like little flags that go up and indicators that we need to dig into that because there's more underneath. And this is one of those flags, but we have to figure out where it's coming from. We have to figure out why we're experiencing that. And I don't know, but you know. So ask yourself those questions and see what comes up for you. Now we had a final add-on. It said, Katie, are there ways to solve attachment issues without inner child therapy? It doesn't seem to work for me. Yes, uh, CBT is a good form of therapy. Any kind of behavioral base, I think CBT or DBT. So CBT stands for cognitive behavioral therapy. DBT is dialectical behavior therapy. Also, there's actual attachment-based therapy or attachment theory uh, therapy. Uh, any of those could be incredibly beneficial. They're all proven to be effective for attachment woes. Inner child work just happens to be one of them. And if it doesn't work for you, that's okay. There's tons of others. I would also maybe say that um, EMDR could even be helpful if there's some trauma in there as well that we think has caused the attachment issues. Okay. Moving on to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I was wondering if therapist, if therapists change the way of doing therapy based off of the diagnosis that a client may have. Would a therapist work differently with a client who has bipolar 2 versus a client who has ADHD or from one who has OCD? I hope this question isn't too complicated. And I just want to know, um, oh, and I just want you to know I love your work. I'm always excited to see your videos every week. Thanks. Oh, of course. Of course. I'm glad. And no, it's not too complicated. The short answer is yes. And as a therapist, when we do intakes, so your first few appointments, I would call those intake appointments. And that's me getting to know you. 
that's when I'm asking you probably a shitload of questions or having you fill out paperwork, trying to get a better handle on what symptoms are bugging you. What's What brought you in? Why did you seek therapy? What's going on in your life that you don't like? Tell me all about it. And that is so that I can best offer tools and techniques to help assuage those symptoms. So let's say our number one symptom is anxiety-based. You're like, I don't sleep very well. I have racing thoughts. I like sweat a lot. And I don't like to be in, you know, spaces with a lot of people. I don't really like social situations. So I'm taking notes of all those things. And then my, I'm going to put it into my therapist brain or slash, I'm going to ask even some colleagues. Sometimes I used to be part of this journal club, we called it, and we would get together and discuss difficult cases or cases we were looking for some insight into. Um, we change all the things so nobody would know who it was about, but just as a way to get more tools and techniques. And I thought it made me a better therapist and I hope the other people felt the same. So we take all that information and then we try to figure out what tools and techniques to utilize. So it's going to differ depending on even, even within the same diagnosis. So one of my ADHD patients could be more, mm, more in the depressed or anxious kind of place of it. And another one could be could, their biggest gripes could be the fact that they have a tough time sitting still and it's getting them in trouble at work and they're they're having a difficult you know time with the kind of more hyperactivity component, right? Everybody's going to be different. Even within bipolar two, I have bipolar two patients who struggle more with suicidality and that's like their biggest ooh, upset. And then I have other bipolar two people who are struggling a lot with, you know, maybe they have more of a cyclothymia, like more quicker cycles within their bipolar. Maybe they don't like the hypomania and that's their biggest gripe. Everybody's going to be different. And so, yes, a therapist is going to change the way that we do our therapy based off of the symptoms that our patients are struggling with. I wouldn't even say diagnoses. I would say symptoms because that's really the goal when I see a patient is for them to find resolution or at least better management for their symptoms. And so, yeah, it's going to differ person to person, issue to issue. And I honestly think that that's why I love what I do so much because everybody's different and it it's such an art form therapy. It's like we're taking the information from you and what's bothering you most. And then I'm trying to offer resources or tools or even analogies to help you better understand and better manage what you're going through. And yeah, that's really cool. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, Katie, why is it that restrictive eating disorders often include an obsession with food? Hmm. Even though it's the thing that we're avoiding. I've been highly restricting for about two months and have become kind of obsessed with grocery stores. I go go anywhere from three to five times a week, usually making small purchases each time. I have a ton of snacks and binge food in my room that I've accumulated, but I don't eat it. It's like I'm punishing myself by having food in sight that I don't allow myself to have. I spend so much time on grocery apps, websites, analyzing nutrition labels, and filling imaginary carts with things that I wish I could eat. All of this takes up so much of my time and headspace. I know it's all a coping skill, but I hate it so much. Is it normal for someone with an eating disorder? Yes, so incredibly, incredibly normal. Um, And there was a great comment on this too, so thank you to the person who left this comment. Sometimes it's like you guys read my mind. And the reason that this happens, so this is normal. And the reason that this goes on, the reason that we're so obsessed with food, and the reason that I always say, if your thoughts about food exercise, so either getting food, getting rid of food, compensating for food, any kind of eating disorder type thoughts, if those take up most of your brain space every day, you have an eating disorder. 
I know people want to say, but I only do this X number of times or that this number of times. Or I've only, only sometimes. I'm actually not even worried about that. I know diagnostically people can argue with me, but if you're only thinking about food and things about exercise and compensatory behaviors, things like that, most of the time, that's not healthy. That's not leaving room for life. So anyways, let's stay on topic. The reason that we're obsessed with food is because there's two parts. In the restriction, especially in the restriction, and there's restriction in every type of eating disorder. And hear me out. We all have these kinds of like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Even my binge eaters have like the guilt after a binge, even though there's no compensatory behavior, they can like try to restrict their intake. Like, no, 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 I did that. I shouldn't have. Ugh. There's like this compensatory in a way, even though they wouldn't call it compensatory, this little bit of restriction period that we can go through, or at least as guilt. I shouldn't have that anymore. No, I should go on a diet. Da, 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 da. We talk to ourselves or we restrict our intake. If we are more of the restrictive, like in the, you know, um, anorexia space, or at least a restrictive type, even in bulimia, we go through that restriction phase and our body needs energy. We need food to survive. And as such, our brain is like, I'm going to find all the ways to get us food. Let's get food. Let's fucking think about food. We need to buy some food. We need to eat some food. I need food, food, food. I need it now. When we're restricting in any way, our body and brain are like, we need to get food. That's the whole point. It's all survival. It goes into like survival mode. That's why it takes up all of our brain space. That's also why it's a, you know, actual useful coping skill, even though it's not healthy for us, right? It's a maladaptive one, but that's why it works. If it makes like every bit of energy and brain space we have, we focus on the food. We can't think about trauma. I don't have space for that. All I got to think about is I need a, that grilled cheese sandwich I wish I'd let myself have or that pizza or, oh my God, brownies or, oh my God. That's why it's trying to keep us alive. Our brain and body are supposed to keep us alive. Now, in my binge eaters too, I will say that the reason that we obsess even if you're like, oh, I never really do a restriction phase, doesn't mean we don't obsess. And that's because, again, it's a distraction. Eating disorders are coping skills. And so even if we don't have this restrictive component, we focus on all of the ways that we're going to get certain foods and do certain foods and our rituals around it that we spend so much brain space, we don't have time or space in our brain to think about the things that we are trying to avoid. And so that's really why that happens. Um, and that's also why it's incredibly normal. It, come, it can come from all sorts of different angles, okay? Now, there was an add-on that said, I also struggle with an eating disorder and the obsession with food and compulsive buying. I wondered if it's normal for the obsession to spread onto other things too. I'm in love with languages, but my brain makes me obsess about having to learn every single word in existence in those languages, although I know it's impossible and it makes me burned out. What's wrong with my brain and how can I stop it? Now, this sounds a little more... OCD based to me. So I talked to your therapist and let them know, hey, I'm having these obsessive thoughts and they seem to be spreading. Um, and eating disorders and OCD, sometimes like they hang out together. Now one, they cannot, like they have to be diagnosed separately, obviously. But so many of my eating disorder patients also struggle with obsessions and compulsions. But it sounds like yours are not specific to food. So your OCD lives on its own and that's why it's spreading. So let your therapist know because that sounds a little more OCD-like to me. Moving on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, I'm terrified of people not liking me. 
I don't know why, but I feel like if I messed up or am annoying to something, people aren't going to, oh, am annoying or something, people aren't going to like me and they won't want to hang out with me anymore and they'll leave me. I'm so afraid of this that I find myself subconsciously adapting to other people that I feel like I've lost my true self along the way. For example, if someone said that their favorite color is yellow, I would say mine is too. And I know this doesn't actually make me less annoying, but I can't seem to help it. I don't mean to lie. I just feel like that's what they want me to say. So I automatically say it. And now I don't even know what my actual favorite color is because I'm just so used to doing and saying what I think other people want me to that I no longer feel like I know myself. I hope this makes sense. And so any advice would be great. Thank you for all that you do. Okay. Great question. Incredibly common. A couple of pieces. The first piece I want to talk about is of I'm curious what happened growing up of when people didn't like you or when you were annoying or if you didn't go along with everything. Because my my first gut reaction was, ooh, there's got to be some kind of trauma here. Now, the trauma obviously could be physical, sexual, emotional abuse. It could also be a little more subtle. Things like emotional neglect, like a parent withdrawing or someone not being as consistent. And when we have a parent that kind of shows up and doesn't show up and we don't really know when we're going to get to see them, we can internalize that and think that we must have done something to make them so inconsistent. When we're children, we don't have the full story. We don't understand how, like what work means for adults. And I know you might think, yeah, we did. We did not. We don't have that experience. They can tell us about it, but we don't really get it. Why does dad have to travel so much? Well, he has to work. Okay. But he said he would be there for my game and he wasn't. It still bums us out. It still makes us think that, well, if I was better, then they maybe would have showed up or then they would have been more consistent, right? We can have these internalized beliefs. And so it's really important for us to be curious about where this is coming from, right? If people didn't like you growing up, what did that mean? Were you maybe bullied in school? Is that where this is coming from? Do we feel like other people's emotional experience is our responsibility? Is that where this comes from? Did, were we raised to think that we're responsible for how everybody else feels? We're not, by the way, because we can't control other people. But that's where people-pleasing can come from. And our anxiety or discomfort with conflict or upset can mean that we want to please everybody else first so that we feel okay. So let's be curious about this. Because until we understand it, we can't stop doing it. It's um, There's this old analogy. I've, I mentioned it, I want to say, in my book, Traumatized, and I've talked about it on here. But there's an analogy I learned from Heather Hying. I love her. She's great. And she talks about uh, Chesterton's fence. The idea behind Chesterton's fence is that if we walk, let's say we're walking along a, a farm road, and we see this little chunk of fence, and it's not attached to anything on either side, and we're like, what the hell? Why is this little, we should just get rid of this chunk of fence. Why do you need this chunk of fence, we say to the farmer. And he's like, well, if you can tell me what purpose it was supposed to serve or the purpose it does serve, then I'll remove it. But we can't just go around ripping up fence. What if there was a reason? Maybe the cows will accidentally get out here. They can't get out over there because of the rockiness. But they, you know, we don't know. I know that might sound silly. But the whole premise is that what we don't understand, we can't change. If I don't understand what, what purpose that fence, like why is it there, how can I get rid of it? What if I mess things up, right? And in this case, if I don't understand where my people pleasing or my difficulty with people not liking me, if I don't understand where that comes from, I can't just stop doing it because that reason's still going to exist. And essentially that fence still needs to be there. 
So we have to untangle it first. We have to figure it out. We have to be curious about where it started. Has it been our whole lives? Who encouraged the behavior? It took me a while to figure out where my people-pleasing came from. So be patient with yourself. Ask yourself questions while you journal. What would it mean if they didn't like me? What am I afraid would happen? Well, then I'm afraid I might be ostracized. Okay, well, what would that mean? So if I was ostracized, does that mean I I really want to be part of the group? What does it mean to be part of the group? Why do I think it's better to be part of the group than to be my own person? What would it mean if I was my own person? I know I'm like rambling with this, but it's helpful to pose questions to ourselves in our journals. We know the answers. We often just haven't asked the question and forced ourselves to think about it. That's why journaling is so powerful because we know if we think about it, like my people pleasing, for example, and this took a while. Again, I thought it was because I was a good person forever. I thought it meant because I, you know, I'm, I am a caretaker. I put others first. I am so good. I wear it like a badge of honor. Look at me. I thought that's what that was. And then my therapist is like, started asking questions about it. Do you think it means you're a better person than other people? Do you think it's because you're like mothering? I've heard you say that term before. Hmm. Yes, I did. Yes, yes. Uh huh. What if I told you I think it's more to do with your anxiety? What? Get out. What about discomfort with conflict? Like, how do you feel about people getting angry at you? Hated it. She's like, is it possible that our people pleasing is really just a way to not feel as anxious? Because we don't like people upset. We don't like people not liking us. That makes us anxious. That means there could be conflict. We could be upset. They could be angry. We don't like anger. Anger feels out of control. How do we control that? People pleasing. So be curious about where yours is coming from. That's just my example. That might not be everybody's, but there's some. There's a reason in here. There's a reason for your fence. And we just have to figure out why. And then once we figure that out, then we can try to stop it. Then we can be curious about who we are. We can try out things, look at different colors. Which ones do we like? What kind of food do I like? We'll have to do some things on our own so that we're not influenced by other people because that urge, I will tell you, to go back and do that people-pleasing behavior or that, you know, making sure people like us, it will pull you for a while. So it's best to try to figure it out on your own first, okay? Final question, question number six says, hey, Katie, can you talk about dealing with conflicted feelings towards abusive parents? I need distance to feel safe enough to work through trauma from childhood sexual abuse, but at the same time, I do miss them. I love them and I don't want them to be sad. I feel like a huge disappointment to them. I don't know how to keep the relationship, how to be a good daughter. This is so complicated. And my best advice is to read about trauma bonds. Now I have a video about it. You can look it up on YouTube, just trauma bonds, Katie Morton. There's also a beautiful book um, go to my Amazon shop. Go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton and you'll see it's called, um, let me pull it up here. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, there's a beautiful book called The Betrayal Bond, and it's by Patrick J. Carnes, and it's in my Amazon shop, like I said. It's so helpful because that's what's happening here is when we're traumatized, we were harmed, we were abused as a child. We had childhood sexual abuse we're trying to work through in trauma, but we bonded to them. They're also our parents. It's complicated. There are layers. And until we understand this bond and why it's there and offer ourselves a little compassion, I have tons of patients and members of our community who told me that they are still in love with their abuser. You know, it was their cousin, a friend of the family, their uncle, their grandpa, their whatever. They're still in love with them. Maybe romantically, maybe platonically, but either way, there's still love there. And I think the belief from other people who haven't experienced is like, well, they hurt you. Why would you even want to be around them? Ugh. Why would you do that? It's more complex. There's layers of relationship grooming probably happened. And if you don't know what grooming is, I'm tempted. I think I might do some short videos on there, maybe a longer video. I have an older video about it. You can look up grooming, Katie Morton on YouTube. You'll find it. But grooming is essentially when someone who is going to sexually abuse us slowly kind of prepares us for it by becoming friends with our family and our parents, or maybe they already are our parent, right? So they start doing things that technically we would feel uncomfortable with if it wasn't so slow. Like first, maybe they just uh, ask us what we think of their new swimsuit or they have us get changed in front of them real quickly because we're in a hurry or uh, have you changed in the car? Here's this, right? There's things they'll have us do that we, if they asked us all of a sudden for no quote unquote reason, we might give resistance. But in this, in that particular situation, it makes sense. Or maybe they have us invite them over for certain things. You know, they kind of weasel in by asking us just the right kinds of questions. It's all it's manipulation, all done with the hope of us letting our guard down and making ourselves more vulnerable to them harming us or even someone that we know. We can be used as a access point to someone else. And so there's a lot of reasons that we can feel connected and we can struggle. And so I cannot recommend that book enough. Let your therapist know that this is happening. I think a lot of people feel conflicted. We, they're still our family, right? It's hard. Even my patients who have, you know, like narcissistic parents, they're like, I don't know if I can go cold turkey. I still want to see them sometimes. I still want to talk to them. And then they talk to them. They're like, oh my God, they make me feel like shit. But I, we can't, it, it's not always cut and dried like that. Everyone's experience is different. Not everyone can go no contact. That doesn't mean you can't heal. That doesn't make you a good or bad person. We're not judging. We're just going to do the best we can. So let's figure out this bond for you. Let's figure out, you know, the guilt that's misplaced, where that's coming from. I mean, there's layers to this. There's a lot to talk about with this question, but I hope that helps get you started. And that Betrayal Bond book is so incredibly helpful. Um, I think it's a beautiful book. Hopefully you do too. And that's a good place to start, okay? Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sharing this podcast. Thank you for sending in your questions. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Take care of yourselves, do your homework, and I'll see you next time. Bye.